Hello, folks. I don't know if you know it or not, but if you're hearing me talk right now, it's because you are a pod -rishener. It's our word that comes from uh, podcaster plus parishioner. pod -rishener. It's a pretty cool word. Someone told me a couple of years ago that it was being considered to be put into Webster's Dictionary to become an official word because it's being used out there quite a bit. Uh, and I don't know if that's true or not, if that's ever, ever going to happen, but you're one of them. It just means that you faithfully tune in to listen to the sermons of Willow Church. Um, and um, uh, that helps us spread the kingdom of God literally around the world. So thank you. Now, once a year, we ask our parishioners to consider supporting Wilderness Church in what we call a sustained campaign. Help sustain uh, this, uh, our ability to offer our sermons up for free. This is one of the main reasons we're able to do that. Uh, this year, we're hoping to extend our supporter base up to 375 sustainers. Now, some of you have given for years, and for that, we are, are so thankful. And we're encouraging folks who have maybe just joined on recently to become part of this sustained campaign. Now, you can always sign up for any amount. We just ask that you commit to a regular schedule. And for every donation, um, we have a person at Willow Hills Church that will donate an extra $50, kind of match it with that. So your, whatever you give, it's, it's increased by 50. And as always, uh, for everyone who donates, we uh, will send you a uh, sustained t-shirt. These are world famous. They got some of the cool artwork and the coolest artwork in the world. So you want to get one of those. Uh, just go to whchurch.org. It's whchurch.org and uh, become a sustainer that way. We are honored to be able to be used by God to pour into your life and honored to partner with you to keep spreading this cross-centered kingdom around the world. God bless you guys and thanks for considering becoming part of the Sustain campaign. Hello, Woodland Hills. Hello. Good to see you all here this morning. Actually, I'm not seeing you all here this morning. I'm seeing the staff around me because I'm doing this via video. Uh, we had scheduled something that out of town. I couldn't be here this weekend, and it's not the kind of message that we could have a guest speaker come and do. Uh, and so I apologize that I'm here by a video, but fortunately for you, I'm just as good looking uh, on video as I am live. Unfortunately for you, I'm just as delusional, so you have that. Uh, before we get into this, I want to make this clear. Where I'm talking about um, uh, my view of how uh, the, the Old Testament portraits of God engaging in and commanding violence, how they... How they point to Jesus Christ, as all Scripture is supposed to do, according to Jesus. Uh, this is my opinion on this, and my way of wrestling with these violent portraits of God. Uh, this is not uh, the official doctrine of Woodland Hills Church. Uh, this is not something that we think everyone's supposed to believe. Um, it's my take on this. Once this book comes out, it's, it's likely that the rumor mill is going to get started, and we know from experience that uh, what is said in the rumor mill is not always accurate. Uh, I could be alleged of believing a lot of things that I don't actually believe. So we thought we owed it to you, the congregation, and to our pod parishioners uh, to hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak. So we're sharing this to kind of stay off that rumor mill. But also, this, uh, even though it's just my opinion, it can be, I think, very helpful uh, to people who really wrestle with some of those portraits uh, of God in the, in the, in the Bible. I, I've, it's helped me a, a great deal. In fact, those violent portraits, as I shared last week, uh, they, they were, to me, the, the biggest obstacle I had uh, and believing the Bible to be God's word. And now, now that I see how they point to the cross, it, it's one of the, to me, the greatest evidences of the Bible being God's word. Um, and so it can be very helpful for people. That last week, I mean, one of my greatest passions is just seeing people uh, really come to be confident and trust in the beautiful God that's revealed on the cross. And so I, I, I just love it when the coin drops in the slot and, and, and people's eyes are opened up. There was this lady last week came up after the service, and, um, and she was just crying, uh, saying that all of her life she had 
struggled with this. She wanted so badly to believe that God is as beautiful as he's revealed in the crucified Christ. But there's always part of her that was holding back. And, and she said, it's because I, I can't fully give my heart to someone that I know or I believed commanded his soldiers to slaughter a bunch of babies. He's got a point. It's like, I want to believe God's beautiful, but then you come upon these horrendous pictures of God in the Old Testament, and, and how can that not compromise your picture of God? And, and so now she was just saying that how it feels like she finally can give herself permission to fully trust that God is as beautiful as he's revealed to be on Calvary. So if it does that for you, praise God. If it doesn't, you find some other way of handling this problem, that's fine too. But we thought you should uh, hear it from me. I want to read this, this passage, um, Psalms 50, verse 21. The Lord says to his people, When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. They were involved in all sorts of immoral things, and because God didn't say anything about that, they assumed that he was okay with it. We have a whole history of people making God into their own image. Now, the history of religions is basically that. We're all inclined to make God into our own image. They assume that he's exactly like us. Now, keep that passage in mind as I tell you this story. Um, it's about a, a missionary couple that I had heard about uh, in the late 80s. And this couple was called to go to this tribe in Africa. It was an unreached people group. And um, uh, the thing about this tribe is, among other things, they practice what's called female circumcision, or now it's usually just called uh, female genital mutilation, which is a more accurate description. But it's a brutal, brutal uh, ritual that they perform on young girls that really just ensures male property rights later on. So this, this couple goes to this tribe, and... The thing is, is you can't just go in and tell a tribe to stop doing a practice that they've been doing for thousands of years. It doesn't work like that. You have to earn the right to speak into their life. And so if they had any hope of ever bringing this tribe to, to have faith in Christ, to believe the gospel, and eventually see for themselves how wrong this ritual was, if they had any hope of doing that, they would have to first patiently put up with this ritual. So for about three years, this couple... And it broke their heart, but they had to endure hearing these girls scream as they're going through this barbaric ritual. And, and they kept silent about it. And the tribe thought that they were exactly like them. Since if they said nothing about it, they must condone this, they must approve of this. In fact, some of the things that the missionary couple did would give the appearance that they would approve of it. Um, they, they actually imp improved the thing uh, to some degree. They taught them sanitation things to, uh, to uh, keep the girls from getting infected. Uh, they brought in uh, better surgical uh, tools uh, to minimize the scarring. Uh, they brought in anesthesia and pain medications. So they actually improved the rite, as it were. And so the tribe assumed that they were just like them. Uh, in three years or so, the tribe ended up converting and then came to see that this ritual was wrong and, and, and abandoned it. And so now imagine how differently the tribe's people would interpret the silence of the, of the missionaries now that they know the truth about their character and the truth about what they believe about this ritual. They, they now would be able to look at their silence and they'd be able to see a heart behind it. They'd be able to see that this couple was suffering that whole time as they were putting up with this. They'd be able to begin to appreciate how it was love that motivated this missionary couple to put up with this. They didn't see that the first three years, but now that they're looking back at it, they'd have a very, very different perspective. 
Uh, now imagine if, if there's somebody in that tribe who, who wrote a book about these missionaries from the first day they got there and, and was just recording all of their missionary activity. Uh, and then imagine somebody reading this book 100 years later. This person reading this book 100 years later, they would, um, they would misinterpret the first three years just for all the same reasons that the tribe did. If they didn't know the truth about these missionaries, they would read that and, and, and have come to the same conclusion the tribe came to the first three years. It's only after this person reading this book would see the truth about these missionaries and the truth about what their, 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 their belief about this female circumcision ritual was about, only then could they see, as the tribe earlier saw, only now could they see, have a very different interpretation of the missionaries' activities those, those first three years. And they also would now be able to see through the appearance, the appearance of, of, of condoning the ritual, they'd see through that and they'd see the heart of these missionaries and the love uh, that made them willing to bear this for those three years. Uh, this is, I think, an analogy to what we have in the Bible. Uh, the Bible is really a record of a heavenly missionary. We can think of God as this heavenly missionary, and the earth is sort of this barbaric tribe that he's coming to. And, and the Bible is, is the, the record, the inspired record of uh, this heavenly missionary's activity. Because the goal for the whole creation is love, uh, God makes people free. And he honors that freedom. So he refuses to coerce people into believing the truth. He will not lobotomize anyone to, so they'll have an accurate view of him. Which means that God is very much like in the position of these missionaries. He has to slowly and patiently influence them uh, and, and, and move them gradually towards the truth. Can't just come in and, 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 and lobotomize people to have them all believe the right thing. He's got to work by means of influence. And just as with this missionary couple, it would break his heart sometimes. Some of the things we do... And some of the things he has to he put up with in order to stay in relationship with us, it would break his heart. But God's always had the, the love that was willing to do that. And then in this record of this missionary's activity, there comes a time. Paul says, at the right time, uh, the heavenly missionary shows up. And now he's going to give the true revelation of himself. He's going to reveal what he's really like. And this is what we find most clearly on the cross. The full revelation of what God is like. And the cross is really a way of saying, you always thought I was like you. You've always made me after your own image. You always project onto me what you think I should do because it's what you would do if you were me. But now I'm here to show you how radically different I am than you. And so on the cross, we find this revelation that God is love, 1 John 4, 8, and love looks like the cross. God is cross-like love. God is self-sacrificial love. And, and, and he, he, he reveals that by stooping to bear the sin of the world and to take on an appearance that mirrors that sin. Uh, and we recognize, as I shared last week, we recognize that revelation when we're able to look through this, the, the, the surface of the cross. It's not what you see on the surface uh, with, with the natural eye that reveals God to us. It's what we see by faith is going on behind the scene. There's something else going on. And what we see is that it's, it's the God of this universe who stoops this infinite distance to take on our sin and therefore to take on an appearance that mirrors that sin. It's the distance that God crosses that reveals his character. Uh, the all-holy God taking, becoming our sin. He couldn't have gone further in all eternity. And the unsurpassable distance he crosses on our behalf uh, reveals the unsurpassable perfection of his love. That's why the cross is simultaneously ugly and beautiful. Its, it's surface is ugly because it mirrors the ugliness of the sin that Christ bears. But what's beautiful is the fact that, that, that Christ was willing to bear that. Our heavenly missionary was willing to bear that. And so now that we know the truth about 
who God is and how he, he reveals himself in, on, on Calvary, we need to read the Bible through that, through that lens. Since everything in Scripture is meant to bear witness to that God was revealed on the cross, we need to read the Scripture through the lens of the cross. So now when we come upon portraits of God that, 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 that have a character that doesn't, uh, isn't congruent with, with uh, the, the character that's revealed on Calvary, when we find his origin, uh, the second, third century theologian says, when you come upon portraits of God that are unworthy of God, he says, there you must look through the surface and find the treasure in the depth. And, and if you look through that sin-bearing surface, you'll find uh, the, the, a, a treasure of a revelation that is more worthy of God. And so as we're reading this book, just as the case with the person reading the missionary book 100 years later, as we read it, we have to do it knowing the true character of God. And therefore, when we see these, these sin-mirroring uh, portraits, uh, our job is to exercise the same faith we exercise when we see the cross as a full revelation of God. And by faith, we look through the sin, the ugly sin-mirroring surface to see God stooping as low as necessary to remain in covenant solidarity with his people, to bear their sin. So when I come upon uh, these ugly portraits of God, uh, commanding to show no mercy and to slaughter everything that breathes, every man, woman, child, infant, and animal, when I come upon portraits of God, uh, orchestrating the raping of women or ripping fetuses out of the womb of, of their mothers, uh, causing parents to cannibalize their children, these are all kind of things that are there in the Old Testament. When I come upon these, um, what I see is that this is the ugly sin-mirroring surface that I must by faith look through, just as I do on the cross. Uh, the plain surface meaning of the text, what everyone can see, uh, that doesn't tell me much about God's character because I take all my cues about God's character from Calvary. That plain meaning of the text, the surface meaning, it, it tells me a lot about how low God was willing to stoop in order to remain in covenantal solidarity with his people and to continue to further his purposes through that people. Uh, it tells me a lot about the sin that God was bearing. Uh, but I still see it as God, a God-breathed text. And, uh, you know, be to Jesus. All Scripture is, is breathed by God for the purpose of pointing to the cross. And so if I remain confident that God is as he's revealed to be on the cross, now I can see how these ugly portraits point to the cross. Because I see through the surface, and behind it I see a God who is willing to stoop to whatever degree is necessary to bear the sin of his people. So when you interpret violent portraits of God through the lens of the cross, they become historical testimonies to the truth that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God didn't start getting nice with Jesus. No, he's always been the way he's revealed to be on the cross. Uh, that God's always been willing to stoop to bear the sin of his people and to take on an appearance that mirrors that sin. And when I look at these violent portraits of God through the lens of the cross, I see it bearing witness to the truth that God's always been this non-coercive God uh, who, is, who works by, by patiently influencing people and therefore is willing to accommodate uh, whatever needs to be accommodated to stay in relationship with these people. This view is, is new today, but it actually something like this view was quite widespread, in fact, very widespread in the early church. Before the church got acclimated to violence and embraced violence, before the church quit thinking that God was nonviolent, um, before the church really lost its motivation, when the, when the church embraced violence in the 4th century and 5th century, uh, it lost all motivation to look through the surface of the violent portraits of God because it wanted to believe that God was, in fact, as he appeared in, in, those, in, in those texts. Uh, it, they were motivated to do that because they needed a violent God to justify the violence that they themselves were getting involved in. 
But before this, this, this view was, was very widespread. All sorts of people would say that when you come upon portraits of God that are unworthy of him, such, such as these violent portraits of God in the Old Testament, you have to look through the surface and you have to uh, see God stooping to bear the sin of people. Novation was an early church theologian. Um, he lived from 200 to 258 uh, A.D. And he's, he explains these mediocre, he uses this term mediocre, these mediocre pictures of God. And he says that we find mediocre pictures of God because God's revelation had to be fitted to the Israelites' state of belief. And then at another point he says this, the Israelites viewed God not as God was, but as the people were able to understand. God, therefore, is not mediocre, but the people's understanding is mediocre. God is not limited, but the intellectual capacity of people's mind is limited. And this is really just what I'm, I'm saying. Uh, it, it was a widespread view in the early church. I'm not saying much different than that. Um, and so far as you find mediocre pictures of God in the Bible, it, it reflects not the mediocrity of God, but the mediocrity of the people that God is in relationship with. Uh, what is not mediocre, however, is that God is willing to accommodate that mediocrity. Out of love, he's willing to stoop as far as necessary and bear that sin. And so this view is not novel. It's been around for some time. It would still be around if the church hadn't decided to embrace uh, violence in the 4th and 5th century. Someone asked me some time ago, well, why does God even need to accommodate? Why doesn't God just say, hey, you guys, I I'm opposed to all violence. Just make it clear to them. Why does he have to put up with this? Now, sometimes God is silent uh, because he knows that the people can't handle more truth than, 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 than they have. Uh, he holds back for their sake, and you can find a number of passages where, where that occurs. But other times, God does say what his will is, but the people aren't able to hear it. Uh, this is true all the time for all conversations, but it's particularly true when you're talking about spiritual matters, that, that we can only see and hear what our heart allows us to see and hear. Um, this is why you find this reflected a lot of ways in Scripture. But like in 2 Samuel, it says, To the faithful you show yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the devious you show yourself shrewd. Or you appear shrewd. Um, that, the, the, the word that's used in that last sentence, both devious and shrewd, have the connotation of being twisted. And so what the passage is saying is, insofar as you're twisted, God's going to look twisted to you. So far as your heart and your mind is twisted, it's going to look twisted to you. But you, you, you can't see or hear, but your heart won't allow you to see and hear. This is why Jesus says to the, the Pharisees at one point, he goes, why is my language not clear to you? Well, the answer is because you're, not, you're unable to hear what I have to say. Now, they could physically hear it, obviously, but they couldn't really hear it. it, it they, their hearts were just hardened against it. Uh, in John 5, he says, how, how is it that you don't come to me for life when you study Scripture and I'm the life of Scripture and yet you don't find me in Scripture? Well, he answers it by saying it's because the love of God is not in your heart. Uh, what you see and what you hear is, is a reflection of what is in your heart uh, to see and hear and what you expect to see and hear. You even you see this uh, among Jesus' disciples. Um, at one point, John says this. Uh, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Then they believed. But they didn't believe it before then. 
the reality is that the, the disciples, they, like most Jews at the time, they expected and they wanted a Messiah who would come and kick Roman butt. They wanted a Messiah who would just come and vanquish their enemies and liberate Israel. That's what they're expecting. So Jesus comes along, and right from the get-go, he starts talking about how he has to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to have to suffer, and he's going to be crucified, and then he'll rise again on the third day. But they're not able to hear it. Uh, Peter objects to it. Jesus has to call him Satan, get behind me. Uh, but, but they clearly all forget it because when Jesus finally does get arrested and does get beaten and does get crucified, just like he said he was going to, over and over and over again he said that, but they're shocked. They're, they're in, in total dismay. And then when he rises from the dead, they're shocked again initially, uh, even though Jesus said that would happen. Um, it was only when the dust settled and their eyes were opened that they could see that Jesus had been saying these things all along, but they just didn't have a heart and didn't have a mind that would say it. What we hear, what we see is a reflection of where our heart's at and how our mind's conditioned and things like that. And then, you know, throughout his ministry, Jesus had to say things like this. Um, I have much more to tell you, but you're not able to receive it. Uh, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. Well, this really reflects the situation of God throughout history. Because he's a non-coercive God, he must, like those missionaries, he has to work by means of influence and that means he has to work with people as they are in, in whatever condition they find him. And what they're going to be able to receive from him will depend on kind of where they're at. And God has to patiently stoop to that level. I, I think a good example of, of this maybe is, is a passage I shared last week. I talked about these, these texts that you find uh, where God announces to the children of Israel while they're in the wilderness, he announces these nonviolent ways of getting into the land of Canaan, the promised land. Uh, the one I read last week uh, from uh, uh, Exodus 22, I think it was, Exodus 23. Um, the Lord says, I, I'll, make it, uh, I'll make it real pesty. There'll be uh, too many insects. So the indigenous population is going to naturally migrate off the land. But I'm not going to do it too quickly because then the land would be just left barren and, and wild animals would just multiply. I'm going to do it slowly and allow you time to increase. And in that way, you'll slowly migrate onto the land. Uh, now, that's a very Christ-like way of, of acquiring the promised land. And the question I asked last week was, what happened to that plan? Because um, all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but later on, you find God saying, go slaughter them all. This is what Moses is reporting. Go slaughter them all, every man, woman, child, and infant. And, uh, but spare the trees. You've got to spare the trees, but slaughter everything that breathes. What happened? Be, you know, did God just get in a bad mood all of a sudden? I, I don't think God changed at all. Uh, I think this, this plan was the plan that he wanted to enact, but his people weren't able to hear it. Uh, you know, throughout the ancient Near Eastern world, if you want to take over a person's land or a people group's land, you've got to slaughter them or take them captive or do a little of both. But that's just what it means to take over land is you go and slaughter and, 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 and render captive the, the, the indigenous population. And I think that they just weren't able to receive this. This is just too weird for an ancient Near Eastern person to hear. Now that we're on the other side of, 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 of Christ, it makes perfect sense. But to an ancient and eastern person, that would make no sense at all. And I, 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 I suspect that plan landed on the ancient Israelites the same way that Jesus talked about uh, suffering Messiah, landed on his disciples. And so when, when Moses hears, you know, I, I, I'm giving you the promised land, what he hears, God says, I'm giving you the promised land, what he hears is, oh, we're supposed to go over there and slaughter them. And maybe take some captives and enjoy some spoils of war. That's just how, that, that's, that's how his, that's the grid through which he heard Yahweh saying, I'm giving you the promised land. And the thing about doing it slowly and nonviolently goes in one ear and goes out the, uh, the other. So this ugly, mediocre picture of God saying, show no mercy and slaughter every man, woman, child, and infant 
It doesn't tell us anything about God's character because we take our, all cues about God's character from the crucified Christ. Uh, but it tells us a lot about Moses and a lot about the people of the time, a lot about their culture. What reveals the truth about God's character is that we see that he was willing to stoop that low. Our heavenly missionary was willing to stoop this low, but how it must have grieved him to put up with this, but to stay in covenantal solidarity with his people and to continue to further his purposes through them, he accommodated that belief. Uh, and and that, that's, that reflects the exact same thing he does on Calvary. But one of the things that supports this uh, accommodating picture of the... Uh, or accommodating interpretation of the Old Testament violent portraits of God, uh, one of the things that supports it is that we find God accommodating things all over the place in the Old Testament. In fact, I'd go so far as to say that the vast majority of what you find in the Old Testament doesn't ref reflect God's ideal will. It reflects God accommodating his ideal will to the, the state of his people. Uh, common example we use is marriage. You know, God's ideal from the start was, was one, a man and a woman uh, for life. That's his ideal. But before long, we find him accommodating divorce, and we find him accommodating polygamy, and we find him even accommodating concubines, which were women that sired men's children, but they weren't even married to them. Uh, because this is where the people were at. God had to, he'll always, he'll always reveal as much of his ideal as possible, but he always accommodates as much as necessary, and this is just where the people were at. Uh, God's ideal will was not for Israel not to have a king. Because he wanted to put on display to the nation something of his original will for humanity, and that was that human beings wouldn't rule one another. We would just be all under the rulership of God. That worked for a while. But then there came a point where the Israelites, they got nervous, they got scared, they wanted to be like other nations. It's kind of hard just to entrust an invisible God to protect you, and so they wanted a visible king. And they clamored for it. And even though the Lord says they're rejecting me, for Samuel 8, to have a human king is to reject God as king, but even, even, even though that's the case, God acquiesced, and he gave them their, their, their desires. He stooped to that level. And what's interesting is whenever God accommodates something in, in, in the Bible, he then takes on an appearance in Scripture as though he was condoning it. I mean, after he, once he accepts this king thing, he, he never again tells them that that was their decision, that was a bad decision. Even, even when the king screws up, he doesn't say, told you so, told you so. He takes on this role as a, a real typical ancient Near, Near Eastern deity who relates to his people through the king. That's how all other ancient people, uh, ancient Near Eastern people viewed the matter. The, the gods operate through the king, and, and so the king is kind of the, the medium through which uh, uh, all things are made known to the people. Well, God plays that role. Even though it wasn't his idea, even though he's accommodating, you think that kingship was his idea. Uh, same thing with polygamy. Uh, you know, we, we find some passages where... It looks like God's celebrating polygamy. He says to David, I gave you all these wives. <laughs> you know, I would have given you more if we wanted to. Like, like, he just loves to give out wives. But we know that it grieves his heart. He hates it. And we, since we know his true character, we've got to be able to look through the ugly, sin-mirroring surface of these things and see what's really going on behind the scenes. Uh, the law, another example. Uh, you know, the, if, in the Old Testament, the law is celebrated as a way to be rightly related to God. Put your trust in the law, and there's all these passages, especially in Psalms, just delighting in the law. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Well, when Jesus shows up and reveals the true character and will of Yahweh, uh, we get a very, very different understanding of what's really going on. And so the Apostle Paul, as he's now looking at the Old Testament through the lens of the crucified Christ, he sees that this law, it's, it, it's good in and of itself, but it's not the way to get rightly related to God. In fact, what the Apostle Paul sees is that the law was given not to show us how we can be right, right, rightly related to God, but to show us how we can't be rightly related to God. 
It, it shows us that we, 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 we can never keep the law. Uh, we can never be justified by means of the law. And, and that it was given just to, he says, expose our sin and even intensify our sin to lead us uh, to, to, to an awareness of how desperately we need a Savior. And so he says the law was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It was a negative object lesson. So what it means is that, that when we, knowing God's true character, God's true will, as we look at all these portraits of God as a law-oriented deity and giving all these laws and, and, and all the violence that goes with these laws, we've got to be able to see, see that that's not really what God is like. Uh, that the truth is that God is he's behind the scenes. He's stooping to this level to bear the sin of his people. This is where they're at. This is what they need at the time. And so God will play that role. But if you want to know what God's really like, uh, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. A great passage that, that, that gets at this is uh, this. In John 1, verse 17 and 18. I love this passage. It says, The law indeed was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart. He has made him known. A couple things about this passage that are just great. First, notice the contrast. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Uh, when saying, he's contrasting truth with the law, which means that there's something untrue about the law, which is what I've been saying. Uh, it doesn't really reflect the, the true character of God. Uh, you only get the truth when you get the grace. If you want to know what God's really like, well, you've got to, he comes with the grace. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and so the law was defective in that way. Hebrews 8 even tells us, he says, that, he says there's something wrong with the law. That's a quote. And he says that's why the law is obsolete and it's passing away. It's also why the, the, Paul and the author of Hebrews uh, say that the law is a shadow that points to the reality. The reality is Christ. Uh, the negative shadow of the reality is the law. It's a negative object lesson to lead us to Christ. And then uh, uh, John says here that no one has ever seen God, but the, God the Son has made him known. And you need to know that, that throughout the Gospel of John, knowing and seeing are used interchangeably. Uh, seeing is just his favorite metaphor for knowing. And we use it that way too, like I see what you're saying. Uh, it, it's not referring to physical seeing, it's referring to seeing with the mind. And, and so what, what, what John's contrasting here is this. He's saying no one has ever really known God, until God the Son has revealed him. And he's speaking with a little bit of hyperbole here because they had glimpses of truth in the Old Testament. That's Hebrews 1. But what he's saying is that compared to what we know about God in Jesus Christ, it's as though no one had known anything about God until Jesus Christ showed up because the true God is the God of grace who's revealed on the cross. Amen. Amen. So the law was a big accommodation. And so all the law-oriented portraits of God, the idea of a God who's oriented all around the law, uh, that's, those are all accommodations. Uh, the final one I'll talk about, and this is the really interesting one, are animal sacrifices. Uh, you know, if you read Leviticus, one of my least favorite books, you find all these in detailed instructions about how to twist a pigeon's head off. And, and you, you got to you know, kill it this way, you got to cut it open, you got to pluck out its feathers, you got to sprinkle the blood there, sprinkle the blood there. And as a person who doesn't like violence against animals, it bugs me, to be honest with you. And then 13 times you have this phrase, uh, and the Lord uh, smelled the sweet aroma of the sacrifices. Hmm. Now, here's the thing. Everyone in the ancient Near East engaged in animal sacrifices. It's just what you do. And in fact, they were doing it centuries before the Israelites ever came along. God didn't originate this, this idea. It was already there. And it looks like God, at some point, decided, since the Israelites are already sacrificing, he'll accommodate that belief. In, in uh, 
Leviticus 17 says this. Tell the Israelites to, go, to no longer sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons. Goat demons are, was just kind of a standard ancient Near Eastern demon that lived out in the desert. And so uh, it, it seems that the Israelites were already sacrificing to these goat demons. And so the Lord says, well, if they're going to sacrifice, it would be better to sacrifice to me than to goat demons. And so what he does is he, he accommodates that practice and he gives it a new meaning. Invests it with a new meaning. Now, one of the things that's interesting is that in the ancient Near East, everybody believed that when you sacrifice either a child or animals up to your, your deity, you're feeding them. This is their food. And they believed that quite literally. And all of them talked about the sweet aroma that attracted the gods. The first thing they mentioned when they offer a sacrifice is that the gods smelled the sweet aroma and they came down and devoured the sacrifice. Now, God always reveals as much of his true self as he can, but he accommodates as much as necessary. It seems that God was able to move the Israelites away from the idea that, he, that they're actually feeding him with their, their, their uh, sacrifices because we don't find any depictions of Yahweh devouring the sacrifices. Although you do find a couple of references where uh, Yahweh is depicted as referring to the sacrifices as his food. And a lot of scholars argue, I think plausibly, that this reflects an echo of that ancient Near Eastern belief. The Lord says, bring me my food. But thankfully, we don't have a picture of, of him uh, eating it. But it seems that they weren't ready to let go of the idea that God enjoys the smell. That was just too ingrained, and so God allows them to keep on thinking that. Uh, even though, as we look at it, we see that, that that is definitely an accommodation. God's not there going, mm, I love the smell of those burning goats. Uh, no, it's, it's, but that's how, they, that's how they needed to think about him. Another early church theologian, Gregory Nazianzus, uh, he lived from 329 to 390. Here's how he explained uh, uh, animal sacrifices. Uh, he, he said that God has to always mix. He takes his revelation and he has to always mix it with the culture of people. Otherwise, they couldn't stomach the revelation. He says it's like a doctor who's got very necessary but nasty-tasting medicine, so he mixes it with sweet juices. Uh, and then, then uh, God slowly, as people get acclimated to the taste of revelation, he's able to peel away more and more of the culture, the fallen culture. So early on, there's a lot of culture and little revelation. Later on, there's a lot of revelation uh, and, and a little culture. He says that first God cut out the idols, but he had to leave the sacrifice. Now, I would add, he cut out the idea that they're defeating the gods, but he had to leave the idea that he still enjoys the aroma. Then Gregory says that he destroyed the sacrifices, but he had to leave the circumcision. And later on, he, had to, he was able to get rid of the circumcision. And so he concludes with this. He said, God, God beguiled his people into the gospel by gradual changes. And he sort of like, like a doctor wanting to swallow a medicine. You've got to almost trick people into it. But slowly but surely, he's leading people. He had to let them go on thinking that he was this way because they couldn't take the truth. Truth, you can't handle the truth. So he leaves them in their, their, their conceptions. But it, it's loving that he does that. But slowly he leads them into the gospel where you get revelation with, 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 without the culture. And see, Gregory's right. Uh, God did eventually destroy the sacrifices. You read later authors, and it's very clear that God never liked that stuff. Author of Hebrews says, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them. Didn't he like to smell? No. He never, it never was that idea. Even though they were ordered in, in accordance with the law. See, here again we're seeing this idea. God, there's the law, but he's not pleased with the law. He doesn't desire the law. There's stuff in the law they didn't desire. Why? Because that's, that came from the people, not him. What came from him was the fact that he loved them enough to enter into solidarity with that. And so he takes on a semblance of that in, in, in the record of his missionary activity. But he doesn't desire it. Never wanted it. And Isaiah, 
Yahweh says, I have more than enough of your burnt offerings of rams, of fat, of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. No pleasure. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, here we get a little peekaboo into the pain that God has putting up with this human nonsense. He's done it for a century. It's what was needed, but he's bearing the sin of his people. That's what he's saying there. I'm bearing this stupid ritual that was never my idea in the first place. It was your idea, but I wanted to put up with it. Go along with it because that's what you needed. But there comes a time when you've got to outgrow this. Uh, and that's, that, that's basically what Gregory of Nazianzus is, is, is saying. The truth is God's always been opposed to killing animals uh, as an act of worship. And so when we see uh, this picture of God demanding this sacrifice and delighting in, in this sweet aroma, we've got to know, since we know the true character of God, that something else is going on. And by faith, we've got to look through that sin-bearing surface to see God stooping this far out of love for his people uh, to bear their sin and take on an, an appearance that, that mirrors that sin. And, and so, folks, if, if, think about this. If violence against animals as an act of worship is an accommodation, if we've got reasons for thinking that violence against animals is, a, is an accommodating act of worship, how much more reason do we have for viewing violence against people as an act of worship to be an accommodation? I mentioned last week this concept of harem is about sacrificial worship. Uh, you devote an entire people group entire population to the Lord by destroying them, by utterly wiping them out. If sacrificing animals is wearisome to God and a burden to God, how much infinitely worse is sacrificing people? Um, and, and see, when God shows up in the person of Jesus Christ, when we have the one who is the very radiance of God's glory and the exact likeness of his, 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 his essence, the one who says, if you see me, you see the Father. Uh, when he shows up, he puts at center stage the idea of never committing violence against a human being. In, in fact, he says that we're to love our enemies and swear off all violence and to bless our enemies and to pray for those who, who, who abuse us um, be, so that we can be children of the Father in heaven. Because this is the only way we look like the, the, a child of the Father in heaven. Matthew 5.45. So this is the centerpiece of his revelation of God and the centerpiece of his kingdom ethic. If ever we have reasons, and this is just my opinion, by the way, but if ever we have reasons for believing that, that, that the violence against humans is an accommodation, I submit to you that we're given this in the person of, of, of Jesus Christ. Um, and, and so as we look back on all these portraits, whether it's the harem command or him engaging in uh, violence, we're seeing there the way people viewed him in the Old Testament but we are to look beyond that surface. Uh, and, and the ugliness of the surface reflects the ugliness of human sin that he's bearing, and it points to the ugliness of the cross. But as we, with exercising the same faith we exercise when we believe the cross to be the full revelation of God, we can look through that and we see God doing the same thing he did, does on the cross. He's stooping to bear the sin of his people and to take on an image that reflects that sin. Uh, all these accommodations, I submit to you, I, I, in my view, they support viewing the violent portraits of God as accommodations. The fact that God's accommodating everything else, it'd be very weird if the one thing he didn't accommodate, the one thing that accurately revealed him was the violence. I think we've got good reasons for thinking that the violent images of God are, are absolutely in the category of things that God accommodated. And they all provide confirmations then of, of this cross-reading. But that's not the strongest confirmation. The strongest confirmation I'm going to give next week. Um, and I'll give you a little advertisement here. Um, this, this is one of the biggest things that happened for me as I'm doing this research. Ancient Near Eastern people all just believed that, that, that you worship God by ascribing violence to him. 
You're complimenting God by, by ascribing violence to him. And they did the same thing with kings. Um, they knew that they did the violence. When they, when they went out to war, they slaughtered all the, uh, their enemies, but they credited their God. Our God danced in the blood of our foes. Um, well, the, the, the ancient Israelites clearly believed the same thing. And when I started reading the Bible through the lens of the cross, probably the most fascinating thing I, I found, and I'd never noticed this before, but these authors are all ascribing their violence to God. God did this, God did that, God did that. But if you read their own narratives carefully, it becomes clear that God didn't do any of the violence. They did. They, or sometimes it's angelic, fallen angelic beings. The violence is always comes from other sources. It's just that they, being ancient Eastern people, they, they feel like they're insulting God if they don't attribute it to God. So that's what we'll talk about next week. Uh, chew on the stuff. God bless you guys. Now, Trevor, come up, up here and wrap it up. Take care. See you next week.